What's up, YouTube? Welcome to the From Setbacks to Success channel and podcast. I'm your host, Quincy Benton. And guess what? I'm a felon. Not only have I served time in federal prison, but I've been divorced, declared bankruptcy, lived through a house fire. In short, I've experienced some major setbacks in my life. Some of you watching right now are probably experiencing or have experienced some major setbacks in your life, too. However, we want you to know there is hope and a way to get through. Through the interviews on this channel and our podcast, you will learn about the tips, insights, resources, and success strategies that will encourage you to stay sober, stay connected, reconnect with your family and friends, start a successful business, find a job, pick the right life partners, stay out of prison, and many other valuable information that will help you recover and succeed. If this sounds like content that you would be interested in, please smash the like button and subscribe to our channel. So, Today, we have a very special guest in the house, and that is Karima Hanifa. If you don't mind, if you don't know Karima and her amazing story, stay locked in. This is an episode you definitely don't want to miss. So let me first start off by saying welcome to the From Setbacks to Success podcast, Karima. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And... Let me just start off by sharing with our audience. First of all, the, 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 the topic of this particular episode is going to be grateful for my grateful, excuse me, for my struggles, a conversation with Atlanta community organizer, activist uh, Karima Hanifa, who served 26 years in prison. She's now released, focused, a college graduate, married and successful. So Karima. Wow. I, I have to say, first and foremost, um, 26 years. How does someone who has done 26 years behind bars come out of prison and find a way to succeed? So for me, it started while I was still incarcerated, right? Like there's an old saying that said, if you don't make plans, then you plan to fail. So I was an avid journaler. I was always writing. You know, there's a, a scripture that says, um, it's Habakkuk, and it says, it's two and one. It says, write down your vision and make it clear because God is about to do a work in your life that not even you will believe. And so I kind of stood, even as a Muslim, I stood on that scripture and I began to write out a vision for my life. Like, what did I want? I wanted to continue my education. Um, but even before then, I would write affirmations every day, right? I am released. I am blessed and I am set free. And there would be times when I would forget to write those affirmations, but I would come back and be like, oh my God, I miss days without writing, right? And so I would write out a plan for my life. And so I knew that I wanted to use my incarceration experience to honor the life that was lost in my case. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go into my story. But um, I wrote out like, I wanted to use my, you know, um, incarceration as a path to help those that were left behind. So I wrote that down, right? Um, as I was working on my positive human development and social change degree, I began trying to figure out, well, how can I use a psychology degree you know, to assist those that are still incarcerated. So I would write out these plans. There was a point when I wrote out a teaching framework that can help inner city youth, girls, right? So as I wrote things out, I just began to visualize what I wanted my life to look like, but I didn't always have that vision. Okay. There was a time when it was very dark and we'll talk about that as well. But I, at some point in my incarceration, probably like on my 15th or 16th year, I started writing out exactly what I wanted my life to look like. Got you. Got you. And so I know that, um, you know, that is definitely important to 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 journal, to keep track of, of those things. And I, I want to kind of for our audience, at least, I want to kind of rewind and, and start really at the beginning of your, your story and the the issues that led to uh, you being incarcerated for 26 years. Can you start off with that and, and in your words, kind of tell us what that was? How, how did this start? So um, I come from a Muslim background. I came from a very disciplined background. 
And at some point I was exposed to a different lifestyle. So I went to private school. I went to Sister Clara Muhammad School in my youth, which is a Islamic uh, private schools in, in most major cities. I won't just say in Atlanta, but I went to the school in Atlanta. And so um, from there, I was exposed to public school and public school showed me something different. It showed me like a different uh, attitude to children's attitudes towards their parents. It exposed me to like a street life. And so as I began to like take in my surroundings, I became very curious about the streets. And so I found myself in a gang, right? Um, in Atlanta, hanging out with older people, um, basically. And I will say like, and this is very important. I always stress this, like our parents are always right, right? Like my mother told me like, there are two things that happen to girls that run away from home. They either end up dead or they end up in prison. And in my instance, I ended up in prison my 15-year-old friend, Mickey, ended up dead. So I was with a group of older, they were all adults, I was the only juvenile, and just basically like influence because uh, I remember thinking later, like, why didn't they tell me better? You know, like, why didn't they like tell me you should go home or you should go to school or you should stop or just whatever. But it's like, um, I was influenced. I, I wanted to fit in. And so um, a young girl lost her life. A 15 year old girl lost her life. Okay. And I think um, initially, like, it was almost like it wasn't real. It was like maybe a dream or a movie or maybe even like an outer body experience. So psychology um, explains that it's like disassociation. So it was like not real to me. Right. Even like in the retelling of the crime, it just wasn't real. Gotcha. So again, I, I still want to, I still kind of want to get or dive a little deeper into that and, and try to figure out you, you grew up in Atlanta uh, mm -hmm. and from knowing a little bit about you and your, your story, you had a large family, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. Well, yes. And of course a whole lot of kids were born while I was incarcerated. But yes, I have okay. a lot of siblings near my age group. So during that time, uh, how many children were in your household and did you have both parents in your household at, in, at that time as well? So my stepfather raised me, but he's like my he was like he passed last year. Um, he was like my biological father. And so and him and my mother had a good relationship and he had five kids from a previous marriage. And at that time, my mother had one, two, three. So there were four of us in the household. The baby was three when I got incarcerated. So he was probably like one when I started like rebelling and running away from home. So at that time, there were probably like nine kids total. What, what was in, you know, for, I, I know for most of us, and I, I, I mean, I know that traditionally in, in a lot of African-American families back in the day, you would find large families. That was not that was, you know, something very common. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 children. What was it like? You know, I guess your your time frame period of, was what the 80s, what, 90s, maybe 80s, 90s. Growing so up, or, I, was, I was born in 78. I probably be, began to explore probably from like 88 or 89. I think I became curious until well no so 89 actually I lived in West Africa so by the time I transitioned from boarding school in West Africa and back to the United States it was about 1990 so probably from 90 to 93 is when I got out in the streets okay so those last three years so from like 12 to 15 around 12 I became very curious and you know started doing sneaky things that young people do do you Your feel mother like, tells you to stay in the yard and you go eight streets over, you know, it started that way. Okay. So go outside in the yard and I'd find myself like we lived off Fair Street. I'd be down off Ashby Street. Okay. We lived on James P. Brawley, which is like where Clark Atlanta University is now in my childhood. So we'd be like, have permission to go outside after we do our homework and stay in the yard. And instead of like going down the Seagulls, which was like the little corner store, right. I would go way down to Ashby, right? Okay. So it started that way. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And, and and still with staying with that, uh, your your early beginnings, and, and I know you wouldn't want to place bank blame on anyone, but do you feel like there might have been anything in your household that kind of led to, for lack of a better word, way of describing it, maybe delinquency or you just feel like it was just kind of normal stuff that you kind of um, just were experiencing or, 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 or you know, just kind of um, experimenting with? 
So things that were normal to me were not normal to other kids. Like growing up Muslim and uh, we would go like, we would go out in the country like and learn how to clean, take up this, um, you know, take apart, put back together firearms. Um, just some odd things happened in my childhood that, so when other young people, when I finally made it to the streets, I'm like, young people were excited about guns. Like, it was no big deal to me. Like, I'm not tripping. It wasn't exciting. Like, I knew that guns kill people. And I knew that this is how you clean it. This is how you take it apart. This is where the pin goes to put it back together. Like, these were just like, almost like methodically things that I knew. So like, my childhood was different in that aspect. And I think that learning to use firearms at a very early age um, was a way of teaching us to protect ourselves and to protect our families. And I think part of that militia slash discipline is what kind of took me to the streets and drew me to another a group of, of, of order, not necessarily discipline, but like somebody telling you what to do, that mentality in my brain, like being told what to do or like almost like structure, but a different type of structure because my childhood was very structured. Okay. 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 So uh, I thank you for, for elaborating on that now. So I, I will say this um, due to the nature of the, the crime that you was, you, you were convicted of uh, it's very public as you know, and it is available um, publicly available to talk about. And we won't go into the details during this interview. So, but anyone who, you know, any one of our listeners or watchers on this channel, you know, are they are able to uh, see the details of your case? So, we're, but, but again, we're we're not going to really dive into that. But um, take me to the steps from, I guess, what when were you arrested? How were you arrested? What was the process of you know kind of conviction? And then kind of take me to that first day, you know, in prison, locked up, knowing that you are now facing. Uh, it wasn't 26 years, but I guess at that point, two life sentences. That is correct. Two consecutive life sentences. OK, so I got arrested on August the 15th, 1993. I was 15 years old. That is a very uh, real. It's a recurring num number in my life. Like I was born January 15th, got locked up August 15th, for 15 years old. Surprisingly, I was released from prison on the 19th. Right. But I found out on the 15th. I was. Oh, OK. <laughs> All right. Okay, so I'm almost 15 years old and it um, was probably almost two weeks after the crime was committed that like it started coming up on the news and um, they never said my name because I was a juvenile, right? They were just saying that there was a juvenile, female juvenile that was involved, a person of interest. Um, I, after seeing it on the news, I turned myself in. Um, my mother went with me when I she met me at homicide. Um, it was a very um, overwhelming 12, 13, 14 hours that I was there at homicide. Um, and I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but there were some things that were promised. Um, there were some things that were done that shouldn't have been done, such as telling my mother that because I was a juvenile, I wasn't going to get a whole lot of time and I did not need an attorney. They just needed to know what happens. And after I told them what happened, the handcuffs went on. And when you look at like these movies <laughs> where like they take you in these interrogation rooms and they offer them soda and, 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 and uh, donuts, it's true. <laughs> they did offer me donuts and like sodas and sodas and sodas. Okay. Like, you want some more? You want some more? You're underage, but we would give you a cigarette. Like that really is true. That really does happen. Like, okay. They try to get you the top. All right. So um, after being about 13 or 14 hours in the interrogation room and after telling them what happened, which um, some of my co-defendants had already been arrested. I'm not the only person that was arrested for this crime. I actually had eight adult co-defendants. Um, so I was 15. And then the next age after that was 18. And then the oldest person was like 29 or 30. He was a male. And so um, I get to the juvenile and it doesn't really hit me like why I'm there. Um, I remember like I used to smoke weed before I got arrested. And so like I literally had this delusional moment where like I had taken this weed out this sack and cut this blunt open and rolled this blunt and like literally tried to smoke. It was almost like a psychotic moment and realized like 
I am in a room and because I had a violent offense, they kept me in isolation when I first got there. And eventually um, they allowed me to go to start going to school because like there's a, there was like a, you know, in juvenile facilities, there are like um, high school classes that are available. Um, when you get to jail, then there's GED that's available. Okay. And so I spent um, a year and nine months in the juvenile. During that year and nine months, I was transferred to every juvenile in the state of Georgia, every YDC. Like they would just move me and move me and move me and move me. And it was because my case was high profile. Um, so I really didn't get to make any friends when I was in juvenile. On my 17th birthday, they took me to 901 Rice Street. And a year and three months later, because I spent a total of three years in the county before I got to prison, um, on February the 29th, it was a leap year, I was found guilty of murder and kidnapping and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. And my sentencing order literally said sentenced to prison for natural life. Wow. That's... um... I, I can only imagine that that had to be devastating. Um, I know f- for many people um, who are become are found guilty and and know that they're going to to go to prison. I, I can't imagine. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I haven't met anybody personally who, who on some level, doesn't find it devastating to find that out. Um, I know. I'm even in my situation. Uh, when I discovered, you know, I was just doing going to do five years, you know, I felt like, you know, that was mind blowing to me. So uh, to I mean, just the thought of, you know, receiving a sentence where two consecutive life sentences were basically this saying that you will essentially die in prison. That is correct. Yeah. And I believe uh, that. I believe that for many years. Many, okay. many years. Yeah. Yeah. So so that takes me to, you know, day one of, of, of serving your time. What prison did you land in uh, to, to start your sentence? And I guess at this time you were you're 17, 18 years old when Seven. you started starting your bid. I was 18. I was 18. 18. Mm-hmm. OK, so you're 18 years old, starting your bid in a women's I went to metro state prison which is the diagnosis intake prison in the state of georgia was it's actually a men's prison now okay and day one what 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 do you remember or do you have a memory of that i remember people pointing at me saying that's that girl that was on tv that's that girl that was on tv and i also remember an old head taking me under her wing and saying what's your name if anybody asked what you tell them I'm your daddy, right? It was a, 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 a elderly lesbian was like, I'm your daddy. And we remained friends for 22 years. Okay. Of that 26 years. Gotcha. We remained friends until the day that she was released from prison. And she had a son and daughter that was one, her daughter was one year older than me. Her son was one year younger than me. She had a mandatory um, 25 year sentence. And so she was able to raise me because she couldn't raise her own kids. Okay. Okay. So that probably was like, felt like that was a godsend in, in some ways, you know, because I guess you never know, you know, what it's going to be like. I, that was your first time being locked up. So you had no idea what this was going to be like. Um, yes. Tell me, uh, moving forward, what, what were some of the, your thoughts, you know, through, um, you, you know, your, your early years, your teenage years, you know, t- your twenties, you know, doing your time. Um, I, I know we talked about this a little bit offline, um, prior to the interview, because I know that, um, for, you know, such a, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but what's, you know, for receiving such a large sentence, I mean, I mean, how do you find hope in that? You know, what 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 keeps you from saying, look, I just want to end this all right now. So it would I would definitely say like what what gave me hope. And so like something that's very important is God first. Right. So right. like being, being raised Muslim, like even though I strayed from the Islamic lifestyle, when you locked up, you don't have nobody but you and God for real. Like I don't care what you did, who you were before you came to prison, who you think you are while you're in prison. When your eyelids close at night, it's just you and your creator. Whoever you choose to call your creator, whatever you believe has created you, it's just you. And you have to deal with yourself. So God first. Um, Something else that gave me hope was like, 
holding on to my moral compass. Your moral compass is so important. I think that as children, there is so much good that is instilled into us. And so we we stray away from it. We're taught early in age not to steal, not to lie, not to kill, not to rob, not to do anything to harm other people, right? But we stray away from that because we become influenced by social media or other Absolutely. individuals around us or our environment. And mm-hmm. so what gave me hope was like, remembering what my moral compass was there were literally times when like I would be in a situation where I could respond violently or negatively and I would be like what would my mom say like if like literally it's like 12 o'clock at night there's a beef going on and it's like what would my mom tell me to do you know for some people it would be like what would Jesus say what would Jesus do right or like what is the right thing to do and so I think like spiritually later on in my sentence I was able to like use the Quran to kind of ground myself, you know, it was always a reminder, like, anytime I kind of stepped out of character, it was like, is this, are you acting like who you say you are? Right. right? It was like a self check. Like you say that you're compassionate, you're loving and you're caring. So what are you doing? Right. So there'll be like instances where I would have to respond aggressively, but then I would go back and apologize because like in my mind, I'm like, I'm not about that life no more. Right. right. Like, I'm trying to be a better person. And as I got deeper into my sentence, like, so like in the beginning, in the middle of my, so the beginning of my sentence, it was like, not real to me. Like I thought I was locked up for shoplifting or or something like it hadn't really dawned on me. Like someone had lost their life and it's like, I am to blame. Right. Um, In the middle of my sentence, I began to pray for death. Like I was so hopeless. There was a moment when I was like, not a moment. There were many, many nights when I was like, oh my God, what have I done? And I always like explain to people this concept. Like if you steal someone's purse, you can give it back. If you steal somebody's money, you could give it back. Mm -hmm. If you take a life, you can never give that back. And so then it began like, what can I do to honor her life? And what can I do to honor my parents? Like, I feel like it wasn't just me that was incarcerated. I feel like it wasn't just me that lost. Like, what about all these other people who are affected? But something that I I learned and I, I understood through my incarceration is that, like, we have to thrive where we are, right? Yes. If you say that you are a good person, you got to be a good person no matter where you are. Absolutely. And it was explained to me by my play brother. And um, you're very familiar with him. There was a visit where he actually came to me and he said, I, I was fussing one weekend and I'm like, you know, Adisa, why you ain't been down here to see me? And you said you was going to come see me. And he was like, listen, don't nobody owe you nothing. Right. Prison is just another circumstance in life. Mm-hmm. If you was free, you think you could be laying on my sofa every weekend chilling with me? No, people have lives out here. And so he was like, it ain't no different if you was in the military and you was deployed to another country. Right. Mm-hmm. Like people have lives out here. And so I just it kind of hit home. And I had I'm sure I had an attitude at this point. I probably was like 25 and I was probably like taken aback. Like, Ugh. but then when I thought about it, like he was right. Right. And so I started thinking about like sometimes we find ourselves in positions or predicaments where like there's an opportunity to do so much good around us, right? Especially in a dark place like prison. And so I decided like, okay, I want to be remembered and I want to be remembered for something good. And so I began to mentor the young people. I began to take care of the elderly. I began probably for about 12 years, every weekend, I would go and take care of the severely mentally ill inmates because I believe that good deeds give us good character, right? Absolutely. It's their character building. And so that brought me back to my moral compass because Karima means generous. And I was raised to, it was instilled in me to live up to the attribute of your name as a Muslim. So as an adult, I had to find a way to thrive where I was, right? So I just began to mentor the young people and just be a good person and just be helpful. It was never about conning people or trying to get over on people or running game on people. It was like, how do I want to be remembered? Right. And, and, and when I finally realized that a counselor asked me 10 years into my sentence, she said, what are you going to do when you get out? And I thought, what get out? Mm. I'm not ever getting out. And she was like, you have, you have a TPM, which is a tentative parole month. And I said, I do. And I started crying because I hadn't considered that I would ever get out. But in the meantime, in Mm -hmm. between time, it was just like, I'm going to be a good person no matter where I am. I'm going to do good no matter where I am. 
And so like showing people kindness and just love, like from the heart, like just taking care of other people gave me a purpose. You know, yeah. it gave me a reason to live. And I just decided I'm going to be kind to people no matter where I am. And I started questioning myself, like, I would see people fighting in prison and I'm like, grown people don't act like that. And I would say, if I was free, would I be acting like that? And so uh, so the flip side is people in prison would do rec- have reckless behavior and they'd be like, oh, this is just prison. This ain't real. Mm-hmm. And I told one of my mentees one time, I said, listen, I said, any disease you catch in here, any bloodborne pathogen that you, you know, contract, you don't get to leave prison and say, that wasn't real. I was just in prison. <laughs> no, baby, this is real life. This is not right. a game. Right. You take you everywhere you go. And so I helped, I understood. And so that's how I live my life. It's only one of me, right? Mm-hmm. So I could be wicked, deviant, and evil. Or I could be loving, compassionate, um, and just bring something to the table that, it's not found in that environment. And it changed the way people perceived me. It changed the way people treated me. It changed people the way that they dealt with me. And there was there were times when I had an opportunity to talk to the parole board and I was like, listen, could you stop looking at that file? Mm-hmm. I am human. Right. I made a mistake, but I want to live and I'm going to be good no matter where I am. Right. And if you don't let me go, I'm not going to act crazy because a good behavior to me is not. um, It's not. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's not um, conditional. Mm -hmm. If you're good, you're good. Right. You know, a lot of people during the time, they're like, uh, they let me go. I'm about to turn up. No, (laughs) I'm going to go in my room, cry out, (laughs) beg God and come back out and be like. All right, y'all, we got poetry night coming up. What we going to do? So like even when I was inside, I was organizing and just trying to find ways to just have a fulfilling life. Right. Regardless of where I found myself. Gotcha. You know, that's I mean, that is such a powerful um, story, testimony. That's I mean, just in terms of your journey inside, how, you know, things for you changed, how you evolved, how you matured. Um, That is awesome to hear and i think that's a side of a prison that not a lot of people hear about you know they just hear about the you know stuff on netflix or you know whatever's out there you know just like it's just drama going on all the time but there there is a way to become a better person through your greatest challenges uh that you face and through your darkest times and so i think that's really that says a lot right there that says a lot and that's really a lot about what this podcast is about as well i will would do like would like to say right now big shout out to Disa carter Disa is a yes. classmate of mine and that's who you referenced uh so what's up adisa uh, appreciate you um you did say share with me that adisa was someone that i've knew, known for many years who just as a friend had you know rolled out the entire bid with you essentially uh for the most part uh, and how valuable that is for someone who you know has known you before you went in to say you know look you know even though you are in your you know you're in your worst state in a sense you know in your worst predicament that you could ever imagine you know i still know you i still love you i still care about you and i'm gonna ride this thing on out with you that was so let me tell you something so let me tell you a little funny story okay just quick 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 so right. i come to visitation and i'm going through i'm young and i'm going through the boy stage right and i got these dreads in my hair and i got on this big shirt and these big pants and i'm dabbing and i come up for visitation and this is like and i'm like what's up and he's like oh, what's going on shoe and i was like i'm a dude and he was like you ain't no nigga right. and i was like i'm a man and he was right. like he was like you tripping right, right. Mm. and so it was always it was just always good to be like somebody to just bring you back keep you grounded and just be like yo you tripping, tripping. You yeah, yeah. In the big bertha what's wrong with you come on back come yeah you're getting institutionalized yeah. in this piece yeah <laughs> what's going on come up out of there yes. yeah they gonna last yeah. forever yeah yeah come and was, since there. i've been home he's like you remember you told me i'm a dude and he was like no you tripping <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, what's up, bro? Yeah, Deesa, I appreciate that, bro. Keeping it grounded. Uh, so anyway, so moving forward, um, you find out that you you possibly have a release date. Um, eventually, you you get released, or you um, what? Let, let's just start there. What what happened? How did you get out? What and when did you get out? And then kind of oh. take me to where you know what have you been doing since you've been out? So I was really so I I went to the transition center right before the fourth of July, um, two thousand and eighteen. Right, okay. I spent nine months in work release, which is like a halfway house. So and during the daytime, you go out and you earn a check, and at night you're locked back up. Um, I did that for nine months. I had an opportunity to talk to the parole board again, and I'm like, listen. I'm a student at Life University. I'm part of the Shalom Project. Life University is seven minutes away from the address that I'm going to. Like, please just give me this opportunity. I'm going to make everybody proud. I'm going to get out and do my thing. Like, just let me go, please. Like, and nobody had, it's called a 90 day clemency. And normally every lifer has to spend one year at work release. I was determined I was going to get out of there 90 days early. So they agreed. They sent me some at work release. Um, There was an, I had a, a, incident where I was I was promoted in six months from a line worker to a line supervisor at a glass plant in North Georgia as a work release participant. And I was a really hard worker and my suit, everybody at the plant loved me. So I told the plant director, I said, look, you need to start training somebody else because I'm about to go. And so he told the employment facilitator at the work release, I wish I had another one like that, Kareem. You know, she's a hard worker. And she told me she's leaving. And the lady said, she's not leaving. He said, well, she told me she was leaving. So I come in from work one day and I go in and I take a nap. I'm exhausted. I was working like 12. I was dragging the clock, like 12, 13, 14 hour days. I come in and I go to sleep and they call my name over the intercom. And I think, oh, they're going to let me go. They call me to tell me I have a date. And it's the employee employee facilitator lady. And she says, you told somebody you was going home? I'm at work release. Mm -hmm. I said, "Uh, yeah. And all these inmates are standing around me at work release. And she said, why? And I said, because I am. And she said, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. You have a life sentence. And do you have a TPM? And, you know, I said, yeah, July 2019. And she said, well, it's only April. And until you get a date, don't tell anybody you're going home because you're not. And I was like looking at her and she was like, do you hear me? Mm. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, what well, answer me? And I was like, okay. And I went upstairs and I called my mother because we could have cell phones. I called my mother on the cell phone. I'm crying my eyes out. And she said, don't worry about it. You know, she gave me a little pep talk. She said, I told you not to tell nobody you was leaving. I was like, well, I didn't tell nobody but the man at the plant because I wanted him, you know, like that was my two week notice. Right. And so two days later, my date dropped and I come in with these brown boxes and everybody's like, where you going with them boxes and this honey for? And I was like, in my room, she comes out of her office, which is next to my room. And she says, Miss Hanifa. And I said, yes. And she said, so you are going home. And I said, looked her up and down. I said, and just went in my room and I thought, huh, you said I wasn't going home. Right. So. Even at the end, I had these obstacles and these barriers I was running into. So I found out like on a Monday, I got a phone call from someone who said, what are you doing on Thursday? And I said, Wednesday or Thursday, I came home and I said, I don't know. What should I be doing? She said, would you like to go home on that day? And I said, sure. And she said, well, you're being released that day. And I was like thinking I wasn't going to tell nobody when I got back to the center. The police told me, you know, you're being released. And I was thinking, shut up. Mm. They said I wasn't being released. So shut up. Right. Mm -hmm. So. My mother, my father, and my brother that was three when I got incarcerated came to get me. Okay. And um, I had a close relationship with one of the chaplains, and she met me at the rear gate and prayed for me with my family before I left. And I got in the car, and I came to my parents' house that I had never seen before. This was mm. a house that they had moved into while I was incarcerated. And when I walked in the front door, my sister, who was like seven, who is like in her 30s, meets me with roses and she's cooking breakfast and then my brother's wife and their baby come and I get to meet my brother's wife who I never met and I get to meet my niece who's like nine months old at the time 
who I had never met mm. before. And it was just a really beautiful homecoming. And like, they were trying to put together a bed for me. And I just was watching them because I had no idea how to put a bed together. And like, this is my home. And it was just a, a very welcoming, beautiful experience. Um, awesome. I did start having anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, as I began to transition, I didn't know how to use a credit card. My mother would literally stand behind me and be like, swipe the card, Karima. And I'd be like, I don't know how. And I'd be like swiping it upside down. And I look over, there's like a two-year-old buying a popsicle. And the two-year-old knows how to swipe the card right. and put the code in. And I'm just like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand like, what is Cash App? Mm-hmm. How is there money in my phone? Like that was freaking me out. Like, what do you mean money in the phone? Like, well, how? Where? Right. So I don't get it. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And like, I also, so when I came home, I, I, um, I was afraid of like having to explain my crime to people like, well, why haven't you had a job? Like, where have you been? Oh, I'm a convicted felon. Oh, well, what happened? And then I tell them and then they say, oh, we're sorry. We can't use you. So it's like being forced to relive that trauma only to be told we don't hire convicted felons. Well, you know, you didn't hire convicted felons when you let me come in for the interview, right? Mm-hmm. And so I opened a salon. I took the money that I earned at the work on work release and I opened a salon. And that salon was open for about a year until COVID hit. And then okay. I had to relocate because I wasn't getting in business. The man who I was renting the space from, he, he would still want me to pay rent, but I'm not working. So like, that doesn't make sense to me. And so I ended up having to relocate. And from there, I ended up in like a small suite. But what I did was while I was in prison, I had got my cosmetology license. And so I used that Georgia state license to open a business and be an entrepreneur. That way, I created my own employment. Right. And according to Georgia probation and parole, like individuals on supervision have to be employed. But like literally because I could verify that I work here. I have a lease here. Uh, not I work here, but like I have a lease here. Mm-hmm. And this is my receipts where I'm paying, right? I'm paying $1,000 every month. Mm-hmm. Like this is real. Okay. So I was able to create my own employment. From there, um, I did a TED talk. I was home five months and I was invited to do a TEDx talk, TEDx Decatur where I was talking about um, my lived experience and like creating resources for um, women and girls that are incarcerated. From there, I was introduced to the um, APS leader, Atlanta Public School leader, who offered me a job to teach at Carver High School, which was like awesome because I had created a framework while I was in prison and I, it was a teaching framework. So like I wrote that down. Right. I wrote, I took a, a, a business class where I actually wrote out a business plan for this teaching framework and I was able to actually implement it and teach this class. And so that was amazing to be able like what convicted felon teaches at a public school in Atlanta. You know? right. And then they say, uh, we need to do a background check. And I'm thinking, I just gave you the background check. I just told you <laughs> I was in prison for 26, 26 years. years. What do you mean? <laughs> and when I first got there, like, I think they were unsure of me but after I had been here for like two semesters they, I walk in sign in walk to halls go teach my class for two hours and leave you know and then my students be like hey Miss Hanifa mm-hmm. and I actually attended a graduation on last Thursday where I was able to witness like six of my students graduate that were seniors so that was amazing as well so from go ahead no 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 keep going keep going Okay, so from working at Carver, of course, COVID hit. So I was running my salon. So I was teaching at Carver on Tuesdays and Thursdays, like a special curriculum class um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I was still running my salon Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, right? Okay. So then when COVID hit, like I didn't have that um, revenue coming in. So now I'm like tripping, like I need to get this money. So I graduated in like September of 2020. And while I was in line for graduation, I received a phone call from Iman Atlanta, which is an inner city Muslim action network. Okay. Who offered me a job making very close to 50 a year. Okay. Using my psychology degree while I was standing in line for graduation, like pomp and circumstance had started playing. It was a graduation on site on campus. 
And I was like, thank you so much. I'm so elated. Thank you for offering me the job. And I am walking through the, you know, the gym right now. I can't talk, (laughs) sir. But I promise as soon as graduation is over, I will give you a call back. And I thought an opportunity to use my positive human development and social change degree in order to do advocacy work, right? And so that led to me um, championing the no taxation without representation campaign here in the state of Georgia, which is um, advocacy work, criminal justice reform work around um, creating awareness and creating change. There are 266,000 individuals in the state of Georgia who are disenfranchised voters and where disenfranchised means to block. So 266,000 people cannot vote in the state of Georgia because they are still on supervision. Gotcha. I'm not saying 266,000 that are incarcerated. I'm talking about there are 266,000 individuals walking around the state of Georgia paying taxes, vehicle taxes, property taxes, and sales taxes, but are not allowed to decide who their leadership will be. And so that is what the no taxation without representation campaign. And, you know, and that speaks to the advocate community advocacy part uh, that we had talked about that you are, are, are just like, I mean, that's just like, it sounds, it sounds so natural for you. And I know, you know, for a lot of people, it's not something and, and, and people that, that I know that, that I've come across and just just run into and even to myself to in a, in a large degree have almost accepted some of the things that are happening, some of the injustices, uh, some of the um, the discriminatory in some cases practices that are, are, are used against people who have uh, served time. And so uh, it's just awesome to hear that. Uh, you have taken that position and, said, and looked at, you know, life and looked at what's going on and said, you know, it's not right and something needs to be done about it. And I just think that is tremendously um, that I mean, that's that speaks a whole lot about you and your character and what you're about. And and uh, I'm just I'm honored uh, uh, to be with you here now, Karima. So but I, I guess I want to dive into this last question because I hope this will give something for our viewers and listeners um, today as far as because I know one it, it, listening to your story it just sounds like you just did 26 years came out and just jumped back in i mean you had a little difficulty swiping the credit card you know at the, the machine but other than that oh wait i had some psychological problems too like i would go in the bathroom <laughs> and i would hear like keys and i'd be like the police is in the bathroom and then i'd be like no idiot everyone has keys in the free world not just the police right <laughs> don't laugh that's that's a true story I'd oh like, yeah yeah i'd yeah. be in the stall and i'd be like oh my god <laughs> police is in the bathroom and then i'd look down and see some tennis shoes and i'd be like no those are super <laughs> you know it's funny just a side story you know uh being in you know uh they always talk about the courtesy flushes you know and how you know you would always you know hit the the flush soon as you know drop and flush basically you yes, know yes yes and yes so uh i said you know a lot of that stuff i said i promised myself do not do this when you get back to the free world so so you know that you are free and not institutionalized and, and what do i find myself doing doing some of that same stuff <laughs> like that prison will mess you up yeah you got to work through that psychological stuff you know that uh and that's a process that's a whole nother process that's content we're going to we're going to dive into on this channel about getting through those things. But but I guess what I was trying to dig into is that, you know, so many people, you know, who've done less time than you, than you, um, you know, they um, they they come out and they have so many, you know, obstacles and problems and roadblocks and 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 in 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 reality what ends up happening they just end up heading right back uh the statistics tell us the story you know two two out of uh, three inmates are you know within the first three years will return back to prison uh recidivism is real in that sense one Um, in every three individuals will return within the first three years right one in every three will reoffend within the first three years of being released okay okay so with that 
you're different. You're you're doing something different. I, and I know you're still kind of in that window, but it doesn't seem like there's anything that's going to stop you. What what do you what do you think were are your keys? What could you advise to someone who is just now being released from prison? You know, what are your keys or what you would say that they need to do in order to, you know, kind of start living a life similar to yours where you're back in society, you know, reacclimated, doing your thing, being successful? What, what would you advise to them? I think it's important to move like you know what you're doing, even if you don't. Like, I remember the first time I went to the Walmart and I remember like being in the Marshalls and like thinking I was just overwhelmed by choice. And I had to self-talk myself through it and just be like, don't nobody know you just got out. You know, like I'll give you a perfect example. On social media, people look like they got they together. Right. But that'd be, it'd be the farthest from it. <laughs> it's just a good day. They got also a good wig, some good shoes, some, you know, good makeup. But that ain't what they look like every day. Right. But realistically, you have to move. Like you have to move, live your life with purpose and move like you got purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to have it together, you got to move like you got it together. You can't move like, well, always me. You can't be like Igor, you know, Igor. You got to mm-hmm. move like Tigger, 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 the Tigger, the Tigger, the Tigger, the Tigger. You got to be ready. Ready. You got to be willing and you got to make a choice. Like, I ain't never going back because that's something that I said in prison. I ain't never come back to prison. Mm-hmm. And I hear when I tell you I'm so scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I tell you I'm so scary. If they tell you I went back to jail, they lying. It's a lie. Right. Because right. <laughs> I am so scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I value my freedom. I value my life. I value my, you know, I value friendship. I value family. And I just want to stay connected. Um. I think that a support system is very important. Your family is not always your blood. Sometimes you have to find like-minded people. Um, something that I don't ever do. I don't do any hanging out. Gotcha. If I leave my house, I, there's a plan. There's a purpose. I don't ever just leave and say, you know, when we was young, we go to Lennox and hang out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I go to Lennox, it's to buy something, it's to eat something, whatever I'm going for, and I'm going to leave. Get because right so much can happen when you right. just have this vacant time. You mm-hmm. end up at a cookout, and JoJo ends up at the cookout with you. You don't even know JoJo, and somebody gets killed or robbed or arrested or somebody, baby, gets hurt. And then your life is ruined for the rest mm-hmm. of your life, right? Mm-hmm. And so I stay, I'm very focused and I stay focused. And like, I like to do leisure things. Like I like to skate. I like to kayak. I've done some very interesting things since I've been home, but I have a plan. I don't just like, I don't wonder aimlessly. Um, if somebody's not on the same page with me and I can see that they're not trying to get their stuff together, you can come get, you can support my business. I'll give you a great service and you can pay me, but we cannot be friends. Right. Just can't. We're not on the same path. You still want to get high and go in a strip club and rob people or whatever it is that people do. I'm mm. not going back to prison. Right. And I can tell when people are like, I, I have a very great sense of discernment, mm-hmm. which is something I think I had when I was a child, but I disregarded it. You know, we get these feelings that tell us to go home and don't do that and don't say that, but you do it anyway. And then right. you find out later why you know hindsight is 2020 and so today like there are certain personalities that i do not entertain there are certain people that i will not hang out with um i don't even want to be their friend on social media right right right. i don't have nothing for you i don't think i'm better than you but i live my life like i have purpose because i do i believe that all of my struggles it was never about me my -hmm. struggles were not about me there are a lot of things that um, I, I don't disclose to people because the past is the past now. But there were a lot of things that happened in my case. A lot of things they said happened that didn't really happen. And there were a lot of things that happened that never even came out. And I'm sitting there like, well, why they say that? You know, I'm a little girl. I'm like, that ain't what happened. Why they didn't tell that? They said that, but they didn't say this. And oh, they didn't admit that they did this, right? But I, you have to learn to allow your experiences to strengthen who you are you know when a person dies from cancer and they're suffering is that suffering for them or is it for us right the person who is observing they say the experience is the best teacher but sometimes we can learn from other people's mistakes there have been so many young people that i met while i was incarcerated who were like locked up for petty offenses who turned out really great so coming to prison and seeing someone who came in at 15 
grow up in prison. People would come back to prison. They'd be like, you still here? I'd be like, shit, you still back? You know, <laughs> oh, and you back. You back again? And they'd be like, and you still here? And I'd be like, and I'm still here. But right. one day you're going to come back and I ain't going to be here, right? But that was a lesson for them. That yes. was a lesson for somebody else to get their life together. Mm-hmm. And I believe that our struggles are not always, sometimes they're for other people, you know? Yep. Absolutely. And so that comes back to our purpose and just living in your purpose. And, you know, they say what don't kill you can only make you stronger. I am a living example. And I tell people, if they if I can do it, anybody can do it. People come back to prison and be like, it's so hard out here. It's hard to get a job. It is. I Mm -hmm. have a couple of jobs in two years. Right. People say it's hard to find somewhere to live. That's the truth. But I have not been homeless, right? Mm-hmm. People say it's hard to get in school. What? I'm working on my bachelor's in psychology. What do you mean it's hard? Mm-hmm. No, you just have to look until you find some grant money. It is available. There is grant money specifically for people who have been incarcerated. You just got the Pell Grant. You just got to dig for it. It's right. there. You just have to be diligent and you have to be resilient. You have to have the ability to bounce back, even mm-hmm. when we find loss. And and my life has not been roses since I've been home. Like my father passed last year, but the ability to bounce back, right? right, To be resilient is so important. And everybody not going to tell you, yes, you're going to meet some no's. But instead of being devastated with my no's, I just go knock on another door Mm -hmm. until I get a yes. But um, having a support system is so important. And networking with like-minded people is so important. Mm. I can't stress that enough. Can't stress that enough. Yep. I can't stress that enough. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of my friends slash mentors were like my mentors when I was incarcerated. My student advisor, when I first started working on my degree, is still my advisor. And I won't let the college give me anybody different. I'm like, "Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I I don't know who that is. I want to stick with him because I know him. Absolutely. Even though like he's never been incarcerated, but he taught inside of the prison. And so there is grace in that. Like he understands that there are certain things that after 26 years of incarceration, it took repetition for me to learn. Gotcha. Well, I mean, uh, you, you dropped so many gems right there. And I know uh, for our listeners and watchers, uh, if you didn't catch all of them, rewind, take notes, (laughs) dive into this because this is, this is the stuff that what this show is made about made for. This is these are the things that um, the principles that is based on. And these are the things that you, too, can use in your journey to get back into society, get back, regain the success that you're supposed to have. And uh, you just got to you got to stick to the script and follow the process. Um, so a couple of things be- before we leave, because I, I want uh, to. Uh, go back to something that you shared to me. And this was from a previous conversation that we had, because I, I use the word, you know, I start my show off by my name is Quincy Benton and I'm a felon. And the only reason I kind of just accepted that as a, at first, when I first got out is because I really wanted to use that to make sure that I understood that, you know, I'm not just me, the person that I think that I am. I am also the person that people perceive me. So, you know, I was similar to what you're saying, intentional about the moves that I was making, the steps that I was taking. Uh, I didn't want to be in an environment that wasn't intentionally planned that I needed to be in. You know, I wanted to get in, get out of situations and uh, just make sure what I could, at least in my mindset, play good defense. You know, I want to be defensive minded. Uh, some people, you know, they get out, all they're thinking about is making money. They want to be offensive players. I was like, you got to be a good two-way player. You know, you get, you got to get it on your D first as well, because there's so many ways that things that can go wrong, just being associated with things that yes. can send you back to prison. So, um, so, but you, um, but so that's the word felon for me, why I've held on to it. But you've kind of uh, evolved my thinking by using a term called returning citizen instead. And I've actually even gone, you know, I've taken what you've said and I've actually now kind of think of myself as a returned citizen. Like I'm here, you know, I'm back in society. Um, give me just a, a quick glimpse of how, where did you come up with returning citizen? Where, where is that from? So, 
Um, actually, I didn't. I didn't coin that term. Okay. It's a term that is used um, quite frequently by criminal justice reform advocates, right? So we don't want to call people felons. We don't. Right. So we don't want to call people offensive names. So we don't want to call people felons. Uh, we don't want to call people convicts. We don't right. want to call people inmates. We don't want to necessarily, if you're a prisoner, it's kind of hard to get around like, okay, prisoner, but we could also say an individual that's incarcerated. But I've actually been pushing back against returning citizen hmm. um, as I'm doing this campaign because I never stopped being a citizen. Gotcha. Okay. I never lost my citizenship. And every 10 years, there's a census report that is done that counts for every person that lives in a county that um, allows the allocation of funds to specific areas. And every 10 years, I have been counted. And that is why cities, small towns that have jails and prisons are able to just bloom and grow. Right. Because if you're counting a a population of 5,000 people, but they're all inmates, which mm-hmm. allows the allocation of funds to be poured into that community, right? right? It allows hotels, mall strips, gas stations. And then one day you come out and you go down the road and you're like, this wasn't here in Perry, Georgia. where did this come from? Right. Well, Perry, Georgia has a large male prison in that county and they are getting funding for every person that is counted, accounted for in that county. As a citizen, I never stopped paying taxes. I didn't. I don't. I didn't stop paying taxes either. I'll say I didn't stop paying taxes because of the usurping of the overpricing of items while you are incarcerated. You still paying that seven cents on the dollar. You okay. still paying taxes. You still paying them. You didn't have to fill out a W nine or a W two, but you're still paying taxes when you return. You are still a citizen. You don't get to say, um, I was locked up, so I shouldn't have to pay taxes. I don't get, I I say, I think logically, I shouldn't have to pay taxes if you won't let me vote. But guess what? They're going to look for me if I don't pay my taxes. Matter of fact, I need, I'm a little behind this year. I need to go ahead and take care. I just got one of my last points back. I'm glad I said that out loud. I need to take care. (laughs) But it's not like me saying I'm not going to pay. I'm I'm behind. But um, when you say the word returning citizen, where did I return from? Okay. I never stopped being a citizen. But it sounds better than calling somebody a con. I agree. An inmate. I agree. A felon. You know, it's a scarlet letter. So it's just a more respectful way to talk about um, someone who is supposed to be reformed. And that's something else that I think about so much is that if the criminal justice system really believes that prison is a punishment for committing a crime, then when you have been released and are deemed safe enough to return into community, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you still wear the scarlet letter as a felon? Why do you still wear the scarlet letter as you know, convict, uh, murderer? Because in Asian countries, incarceration and, and, and mental illness are treated the same. It's not a stigma that follows you forever. It's a condition and it passes. Gotcha. So if you say that prison is the punishment for theft, why are you still deemed as a thief? Gotcha. After gotcha. you've been released, you paid your debt to society. And that's so why are you being stigmatized? Gotcha. You paid. Gotcha. That's because they don't really believe that the system works. The system is just another form of slavery. And that's another conversation for another <laughs> yeah, day. Yeah. But it's real. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, well, one, like you said, this we are uh, set up for another conversation. This will not be the last time that we we connect on on, on this podcast and uh, this show. But I do want to say thank you, Karima. Thank you so much for uh, being a guest here today on our show. And to our listeners and watchers, I hope that you gain value from today's episode, From Setbacks to Success. Grateful for my struggles, a conversation with Atlanta community community um, organizer, Karima Hanifa, who served 26 years in prison, now released, focused, a college graduate, married and successful. Uh, again, I definitely want to know your thoughts about the episode. So please uh, leave those comments down below. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, also, if you like, you can reach us um, directly at our website at www.fromsetbacks.com the number two success.com that's from setbacks the number two success.com to leave your comments in our blog again my goal is to have real conversations with real people i know that uh, karima is as real as it gets 
so I'm sure at this point you're all wondering how can I get in contact with Karima uh, if to reach her. Uh, Karima, can you share with the audience how can they uh, reach you if they want to? Uh... Um, yes, you can reach me at karima at imancentral.org. You can reach me through the Iman Central website, which is I-M-A-N dot central. No, I-M-A-N central, C-E-N-C-R-A-L dot org. And I'm here to assist and help if there's anything I can do to make the communities that we live in better. Um, I'm here for it. Straight up. Gotcha. 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 So uh, again, uh, to our listeners and watchers, please reach out to Karima for any uh, issues related to the topics that we talked about today. Again, thank you for listening and watching. Be sure to share this podcast and channel with someone that you know. Uh, big shout out to our producer here at uh, Black and Studios. Uh, Buck, thank you so much. Um, you thank can reach, you. yeah, yeah. You can reach them at blackandstudios.com for your next. If you were interested in starting a podcast or a YouTube channel yourself, and again, as always, don't let your setback stop you from your success. Again, thank you, Karima. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, take care. All right.